Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of The Town That Dreaded Sundown, starring Addison Timlin, Spencer Treat Clark, Ed Lauder, Veronica Cartwright, Gary Cole, Anthony Anderson, and Edward Herman. Directed by Alfonso gomez Rajon, released in October of 2014. A collaboration between Blumhouse and Ryan Murphy here. American Horror Story, Glee, Nip Tuck, all that stuff, and... I don't know. Is this a remake? Is it a continuation? Yeah, I guess we can get into that. But I've seen the 1970s, you know, Town That Dreaded Sundown with Ben Johnson and everything. So when I found out they were doing this, I was immediately intrigued by it. Yeah. Also seen the 70s version by the wonderful uh, creator of Boggy Creek 2, The Legend Continues, Charles B. Pierce, <laughs> among among many <laughs> among many other great movies, um, it's just because of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 connection. And it was really interesting to see what they were going to do with it. I had expected just a straight-up remake, and I also didn't really know that Bloomhouse was involved. When I saw Alfonso gomez Rejon, Rejon? Rejon, Rejon, yeah. Rejon. When I saw he was involved, I was immediately interested because I am a huge American Horror Story fan, and more than not, I'm behind the camera doing the direction for American Horror Story, and his episodes are always really interesting to, be, to look at um, from a visual sense. He does some really interesting things with the camera uh, in the, the course of the TV show, and that luckily enough has car- carried over in spades to his... Uh, movie here oh no i th- I think this film is it, one of the things we're going to talk about is how it's directed and it, i'm with you i was a fan of the first season of american horror story i hated the way that one ended and i never forgave this series so i've never seen any of the other ones i'll go ahead and say now but i thought it was brilliant up until that ending but a but a visual feast for sure and look ryan murphy has created some really cool TV that I like. I mean, I watched Nip Tuck back when it was going on, and I thought that was a freaky, weird, cool show. And I, look, I I admit I like some of Glee. I'm not gonna you know sit here and act like I'm too cool to too cool to like Glee. But you know, I've you watched. Probably, you, you probably should. Well, I, you know, maybe I should cut <laughs> that. I like some of the early season, the first season of Glee. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, I like what Ryan Murphy does at first. Um, I, right. th- I think stories do get away from him sometimes, but you know, this one's not one. That, I mean, it's, it's fleet. This movie's under 90 minutes long and the source material it's based off of is kind of small too. And niche. And I, you know, Jason Blum has said, I didn't even know this was a thing. He had never seen the original, didn't know anything about it. Murphy brought it to him and he was so intrigued to work with Murphy that he just said, you know, if this is what you want to do, man, Sure, and they both believe in minimal budget brings out great creativity. And I mean, I don't even have budget numbers on this, but I think it was less than three million that they made it for. And uh, you know, they get a lot out of what they do here. They're they're very much in the philosophy that when you bloat the budget, 
you you screw up the amount of creativity that you can get out of uh, filmmakers. So I was curious about it from that uh, aspect. Uh, they definitely make the most out of some really inexpensive effects, uh, di- digital and otherwise. Oh yeah, I mean there's a there's a few digital effects here, but there's a lot of just good old practical Tom Savini style stuff here. I'm I, you know I like seeing that again. I miss my blood spurt and guts and stuff. You know. Yeah, I got some uh, shades of maniac. During yes. the, uh, the car, the car stabbing in particular, the car, and then the the hotel uh, soldier stabbing that we'll we'll get to as well. That one very much so was a maniac style. And uh, at any rate, at this point, I do think we need to do a quick plot summary, though. So, Ron, if you will give us a quick plot summary, we'll talk about the movie after that. A maniac terrorizes the same small community of Texarkana, Texas slash Texarkana, Arkansas, where a murderer known as the Phantom Killer, struck decades earlier and was never caught. This time around, he fixates on a young woman named Jamie. He kills her would-be boyfriend, Corey, calls her and taunts her about the other kills he commits in the area, and sends her on a Scooby-Doo chase to get to the bottom of the mystery. There's lots of back and forth, but it's finally revealed that there are two killers, a deputy who's the grandson of the original Phantom's forgotten last victim, and Corey, who faked his own death to become the notorious slasher. Jamie turns the tables on the deputy and kills him after he kills Corey. Jamie then goes off to college, but wonders when evil will rise up and strike again. You mentioned Texarkana, Texas, Texarkana, Arkansas there. I know that town, uh, not only because I've been through there a couple times in my life, but more famously because that's where Smokey and the Bandit uh, you know, was centered around, where they had to go get the Coors from in the first Smokey film, if you remember that. So... Them boys from Atlanta are thirsty. Them boys from Atlanta are thirsty, and Sheriff Justice is waiting right across the line for them. So, uh, but yeah, I knew that. But I, you know, having seen the original, of course, been through that area and stuff, I I like the setting of of this film, and we can get to that in a sec. But I guess my first question for you is, I mean, this movie doesn't have a two after it. It's not more of the town that dreaded. So, now, is this a remake? Is it a continuation? What is this? Uh, it's a really interesting combination of the two, I guess. It's it, it's a remake in the sense that it uses big chunks of the original movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, right down to some of the recreations of some of the more iconic scenes. Yeah, but it's also kind of a a like an original take because it goes it. it it's a movie where the movie exists. Right. That it's remaking. Yeah, like the movie, the, the original 70s movies were made about uh, something that happened in the 50s. And so the, this town celebrates that in a way like you would never see. It would be as if in one of the Halloween sequels, they were all watching the original Halloween. You know, because it had been based on something that happened years before in their past, and you know they had made a joke out of it or whatever. Or if uh, Amity Island one day had a Jaws fest and they showed Jaws in the bay, and then a shark showed up and started to eat all of it. It's that kind of thing. It's it, we it's it looks scream like in that way. See, it references itself and its own uh, you know meta universe, I guess you would say. Yeah, that was a really fascinating take for me, particularly when they continued to go back to the movie to the point where you see Lone Wolf watching 
the 1976 version of Lone Wolf on the screen. Yeah, Anthony Anderson is watching Ben Johnson to get tips on how to catch a killer. So he's watching a fictionalized version of a police officer who chased someone. And by the way, we should continue to mention, didn't catch him. If they didn't catch the killer the last time, a great way to learn from that mistake is to figure out exactly what they did, then don't do that. I know, but it's but it's a fictionalized version. That's the funny part, is he's not reading the old actual case files. He's watching a movie about it, which I, I find hilarious. But also in keeping with tone, and I'll say this now, I think this was a genius way to go about this. You don't remake it. You don't reboot it. You keep it in continuity, but you also keep it fresh in referencing, and, and but you still stick to the overall style and aesthetic that we got from that gritty 70s grindhouse kind of film. Yeah, and it, it bears noting that the original film is still really, really good. Yes, uh, yes it is. And this remake, I'll, I'll just go ahead and mild spoilers for the, few, the end of the podcast – this remake is also really, really good uh, in a like a completely different, uh, similar, but they can push it further. Uh, Charles Pierce pushed it further than people were comfortable with with the original, and this one takes that ball and pushes it even further. Absolutely, I mean it's all about pushing boundaries here, whether it's with the. Uh, violence and the level of violence to the just the stark nature of how this killer strikes. I mean, you've got one scene where Gary Cole, who is always one of my favorite character actors in just about anything he's in, plays one of the, you know, kind of lecherous deputies. He's getting, <laughs> you know, serviced on Christmas Eve from his local, you know, friend and in a scene out of the first movie, gets shot through the eyeball. You know, but he's just sitting there in mid climax, as it were, and then all of a sudden, boom, his eyes shot out, and he's just dead. You know, yeah, and, and I'm that a, was great. Yeah, I know it's a great moment, <laughs> but again, it comes out of nowhere. It's that, that's the thing that the first movie that I always loved got was that these attacks came out of nowhere. It's almost like, <laughs> excuse me, it's almost like the Zodiac killer. You know, it would just strike couples or people in places, and you never knew when it was going to hit. And that first film did a good job of portraying it because it could be in broad daylight. It could be at night. Most of these are at night, but it does come out of nowhere. Like they set you up for something that doesn't happen and then boom, it happens. And I give a lot of that credit to the director here who knows how to pull the strings on the scares and just to Blumhouse. I think that's the one thing Blumhouse can bring to this besides the studio backing to be able to how to how to run a small budgeted film and get it done right. And, and keep everything on track and on pace, but also how to build tension. A lot of that happens in the edit room, and I think that's where Blumhouse really excels, is putting together their final product. Yeah, I've I've been watching a lot of uh, Blumhouse movies recently. I just saw uh, The Gallows, for example. Mm. And while that, that one isn't as good as this film, it's still really tight, and they do a great job of delay payoff. They yeah. hold it just long enough to where you think, oh, nothing's going to happen. And then, like a snap, something actually happens. Well, and I mean, that's the thing about those Paranormal Activities movies. The ones that work the best do that. It's delayed gratification. You know, when I go to this, I, I'll go to get a, you know, a scare out of it, right? And mm -hmm. they know those films, the ones that work, know how to give us that. And then this film 
does it as well. And, and I'll put a lot of it, too. It, they also know how to do good, adept casting. You know, we've already talked about Gary Coles in this. Ed Lauder's another one of those guys that, I mean, I thought he was brilliant on American Horror Story, the, the season of it I saw. And then you've got Anthony Anderson, who's always a lot of fun in, in the right kind of role. Veronica Cartwright. <laughs> Edward Herman in what turns out to be kind of his last role. Right, and he was and he was really good too. Yeah, he, yeah, he's really good. And uh, but our, our lead here is what I'm getting at. Addison Timlin, I don't know her from anything. I know she's done some TV and things like that. I think I've seen her on stuff, but just not known it's her. But I thought she really did well as what I dubbed protagonist girl in the film. And 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 you know, for a while there, I mean, she becomes final girl, but for a while, you don't think she's going to make it. Yeah, they do a really good job of teasing that. Um, sort of death, I guess, too. Uh, and yeah, she's great. Um, my wife said, um, as we started watching this on Netflix, she said, well, if I'd known Gary Cole was in it, we would have watched it a lot sooner. <laughs> That'd have been great. Which, so. <laughs> uh, which is a great, uh, great kind of a summation for the film. And it's great to see, um, that, they really did a great job handling uh, this. The Addison Timlin, uh, she's phenomenal. I mean, it's not a role where you need a lot of, you know, acting ability. No, but she's great, and she's not grating, which can be a thing that you with this uh, Scooby Doo, Veronica Mars type of investigation oh. girl. Oh, absolutely. Look, I, you know, I go back to um, some of the films that I've seen where this this role isn't as great. The original Nightmare on Elm Street is brilliant for a lot of ways, but it's not because uh, Heather Langenkamp is really good as Nancy. She, in fact, is terrible. And it, that, I mean, she, that is awful portrayal. It's a terrible acting job. But she was good at one thing. She was good at screaming on cue, and that kind of works in that movie. <laughs> this one, on the other hand, requires somebody that can have a little bit of presence. And, you know, to me watching this, I got a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, really more H2O, you know, more confident Jamie Lee Curtis, but that kind of role from Addison Timlin, she's, she's a more modern girl. She's got her stuff together. She's got plans, but yet she still just wants to go out with the cute guy on the date and have a good time. You know, she's still, she's kind of living in both worlds, but she, she's above this little town, but She's also not so above all of its trappings. And I thought it, it took a lot to be able to do the balance of that. Yeah, she she really nails that kind of um, small-town girl who is destined for better things, but doesn't feel above, you know, she doesn't have that superiority complex. And you're really right about uh, her, a Jamie, and I, I can only assume that's why they, they named her Jamie in this particular film. I was wondering that, yeah. So. Uh, potential Jamies all the way down to uh, Jamie Gertz from uh, Lost Boys. But I think it's it, it, it definitely should be a nod to Jamie Lee Curtis if it's not, because uh, she definitely has that, that kind of presence. Yeah, and that's the one thing, the first film, the first film is great because the score, the voiceover, and Ben Johnson you know, make that first film great, but none of the females in that first film, they're, they're little more than just fodder, you know, for the killer at that point, this one, it's entirely has to be carried upon <coughs> this girl who survives an attack. Her boyfriend gets slaughtered in front of her. 
I mean, <laughs> poor girl goes to his funeral. <laughs> Hold on. Poor girl goes to his funeral, and the guy's mother is like, you whore, you left my son to die in the woods. She has to carry all that and also deal with, you know, somebody is calling her, taunting her. She can't get the cops to believe her. She's got a lot to do here. Yeah, she she really does have a lot to do here, and she really does carry a lot of the plot. But I liked that at least one of the cops took her seriously. Uh, the and of course it's the guy in charge, so he's the one that matters. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's the thing is the one that I, I would venture to say two of them do because I think Foster, our you know killer here, also takes her seriously enough to keep an eye on her. I mean, he's watching what she's doing. Yeah, but I think they told them to do that. Probably so, and I I don't you know, want to put that guy's performance up above what it is, but I, I think we're both on the same page here. Jamie does a good job, is a good character, and an easy one to follow uh, throughout this. Because for a while, I mean, it just seems like a lot of random killings. So you're you're left asking, was well, this a copycat? What's happening? You know, we don't know for the longest time what the the story is here. Yeah, and that's that's part of the uh, the fun I think of having uh, the original movie involved. You get that extra layer of was this someone just trying to recreate the movie? Because they, uh, I mean, the killer even follows the 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 scenes in the film, you know, the the setups in the film. Um, I want to talk about Dennis O'Hare, who plays Charles Pierce Jr. As it were here. You know, Daddy could have gone to Hollywood, but he wanted to tell our stories. You know, that guy, the, I, you know, I called it like typical Harbinger role. And if anybody else had done it, it would have been terrible. But this guy is fantastic. It's another one of the good American Horror Story vets here, right? I mean, this guy's been on several seasons of that now, I think. he's Yeah, he's been on every season to some degree or another, and he's always great. Um, he, always, he always finds something interesting to put into a character uh, – and I think he does a really good job here as the uh, the possibly – I mean, Charles Pierce had his son, Charles Pierce Jr., but I don't know if he lived in a boat. I would hope not, <laughs> but he probably you know thought it was fun to at least revisit this. But this is our first uh, big exposition dump, you know, because – uh, Jamie goes with her friend to, and with the the deputy to find out, you know, what's going on here, and to hear the whole story about the the history, and that's where they learn about Hank McCready, the sixth victim whose story was forgotten. And I, I think I knew immediately at that point. Well, that's obviously going to be is it going to be him or one of his relatives is going to be here. And it's when I started to laugh and realized, wait a minute, we're talking about crimes that were originally committed in the fifties. This is two thousand and fourteen. These people, like you got, it's not the son of, it's the grandson of. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, man, that's a you got to go like two generations for revenge. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> there's no way. That uh, anyone, yeah, it would have to be at least grandson, if not great grandson, because you still got to be pretty spry to commit murder. I know. Well, and that, and again, why it's genius that they have two. They have a young guy who's eighteen, and then a guy that's in his forties. You know, that are that are doing it. And I think if you wanted to go around and try to figure out who does what killings, I think all of the slow stuff is the the older guy. The any anytime anybody has to run after someone, it's the the young guy and I think he's also the good shot. So uh, it's the way the way it looks. But uh Which yeah. one's using the uh compound bow? I think that was the kid, wasn't it? Yeah, I had yeah. assumed that the compound bow was the kid 
Yeah. And the, a lot of the knife work was the kid, but the shooting would have been the deputy. Well, I think the, the kid did the shooting at the uh, the deputy's house. No, you're right, though. The deputy would be the better shot. He would have been the one that shot uh, Gary Cole, the deputy. Yeah, because that was, a, that was yeah. a crack shot, especially with the, uh, the baffler. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's got the suppressor on that 38, and so going through a plate glass window, which, if you know anything, is going to change the trajectory even at you know 20 feet. So, and I mean, that's a great shot too. So, that's a great camera work too. I thought that the young guy probably did the soldier, you know, who comes home and meets with his girlfriend, and they have really wild and crazy sex for you know reasons that, that you know make sense in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. And uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, like she changes positions. I'm like, okay, no, but who does that in in a movie? In a movie, I'm saying like that. You don't get <laughs> that, you know. So, <laughs> what you do at home is your business. But um, I'm saying this is the guy that brought us Nip Tuck, though. That just would have cheerleaders randomly make out in the office, you know. So I, you know, I'd let it go at that, but. Yeah, this and, and these, these are also people involved with American Horror Story, which has a great track record of yeah, random which, sex for you know, strange reasons. Terrifying are scarier than any murder. Yes, exactly. So, so I, I honestly, the the kill there wasn't as jarring as the sexy, but no, no less. You know, she's sitting there waiting for him to come back and propose or whatever, and he's off to go get ice or whatever. And what comes back is the guy slams his head into the glass. And I thought, well, that was an awesome kill. I, I love that. I, I laughed so much at that. Yeah, I know. It was, but you know what? That was the kind of thing I'm like, that's what like Jason would do. I'm like, that is a Jason kill. And I love that. They sort of worked that into this, you know, precursor type story here. Um, <coughs> that, you know, Hey, this phantom was just as, is just as responsible for that as, you know, Michael Myers or any of the other slashers have been around that he could be just as vicious. I'd, I thought that was a good kill. Yeah, and that was one of the things in the first movie. He wanted, uh, Charles Pierce wanted the kills to be graphic because he wanted to not downplay the actual terrible things that this fandom did. Exactly, yeah. Now, I don't know if he beheaded anyone and and headbutted, smashed it through a plate glass window. But at the same time, he did do a lot of terrible things. Well, I mean, think back, though, to that first movie. There's that one kill where the the woman's tied up on the tree and he ties a knife to the trombone and he just keeps stabbing her with it. You know, I'm like, that is a vicious scene. And and I thought, you know, they they can't that would have shocked audiences in the 70s to the point that like they probably ran out of the theater throwing up. You know, I mean, this is just a few years from the exorcist doing that to people. So I can only imagine nowadays, what do you do? Well, you can't really freak people out anymore. Like that's almost impossible in a post saw and hostile world. Right. So what you do is you just hit them with it at, at the oddest times and in things that you would never expect. I'm going to take your boyfriend's head and not only show it to you, I'm going to throw it through the window. You know, and then I'm going to slowly chase you in the parking lot and stab the hell out of you in your car. I'm, yeah, that was the uh, that was our maniac memorial car murder. <laughs> yeah, very and, much so. Uh, you know, I, I ex- you expect one splatter of blood. That's uh, you know when you're killing someone in a car in a movie, you get one good splash of blood on the the window. What you usually don't get is like three or four like gushers of blood. Uh, like you got in this particular scene, because like every that car is like a red wasteland. Uh, oh, look! I I only thought to myself, I was like, see, this is what Rob Zombie wants to do in his movies, but he can't do it with any of the visual acuity or subtleness. That in spite of this being an incredibly gory film, and it is, there's a lot of subtlety to it. 
as well, and it works because you get all the blood and the gore, but you don't get every bone crunching crack that a guy like Zombie or Eli Roth would give you. You know, you you get the violence, but it still has weight to it because you're not just caught up in the you know eat it, eat it, eat it moment of the the kill. Right, and when you do get the occasional crack of bone, it's even more horrifying. Um, oh yeah, I'm thinking of the uh, the fractured, the compound fracture of the the shin. Yes. Well, I, here's another one. The woman that it, you know Gary Cole gets shot while he, you know she's going down on him. She runs out. She gets shot from behind, but is still alive. And we get that great overhead shot of the cornfield. And I'm like, Spielberg totally screwed up his version of this in the Lost World. You know, when the Velociraptors are doing this, you've got the guy circling one way. She's crawling the other way, and she just happens to crawl into the scarecrow. Screams mm-hmm. and gives herself away. He cuts her up so bad and then crucifies her on the the scarecrow to be you know left for the morning for somebody to find. That was effective. I loved that. Yeah, and and that's an awesome that 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 makes for an awesome visual too. Mm-hmm. That just the the great use of the corn. It's better yeah. than anything in any of the Children of the Corn films, and there's like twelve of those. So, which is amazing that they never figured any of that out. You know. Yeah, you'd think, hey, here's we're, we're we've been surrounded by corn for 13 movies now. Yeah, <laughs> we we ought to use it for something a little bit more scary. Yeah, but I loved it though. It was a great again. It was a good unnerving moment, and it was gory enough to you know satisfy that you know request or whatever, uh, and that tone of the film. But yet it still left us with questions and you know how in the world did that happen and wh- the guy's reaction that sees her and finds her. It's like, am I what am I looking at? What am I looking at? And then he you know realizes and just that pan it that zoom in on his face and then you get the opposite zoom onto her onto the cross. I thought was was great again great filmmaking. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the, I guess the fallibility. It wasn't like a, um, like a like a Jason where you know they're not going to be able to get away. Right. She was getting away. She yeah. She ran into some dumb luck, and, and that's yeah. what kept her alive. Yeah, that's and the, at any. You go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, ahead. go ahead. You're saying it. Well, and at any point, it seems like any of these people could potentially get away. Oh, totally. Look, the thing for her is, and this is what the beauty of that overhead shot is, he's going in the wrong direction, you know, and then has only her, you know, bumping in and screaming gives herself away. And I love that, too, that later on when the Phantom Killers, and I think it's the young guy at that point, is uh, is chasing her, he calls her cell phone to, you know, give Jamie's point away. I'm like, that's a great idea. You know, if the killer's got your cell phone and he knows you probably got it on you, you might want to put that sucker on vibrate. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, that was a that was a great touch. Um, yeah, but that's using modern the modern equivalencies of you know the things that they say ruin horror films now. Well, none of this happens if anybody has a cell phone. Well, it does if the killer has your number. You know, so right. and, and I imagine in a town like this, it's not hard to get anybody's number. Exactly. Yeah, they would. I mean, especially he went to school with her. He dated her for goodness' sakes. I mean, you know. They would have totally had that. And my other thing for her is you start receiving phone calls like that. Why don't you go to Sprint and or whatever and go, hey, can I get a new number? Because uh, I'm kind of getting harassed on this one. You well, know? just, you know, <laughs> hand the phone over to the cops and get yourself a, a, a cricket. Exactly. Something. Get yourself a burner phone. You know, come on. In this town, you know, there's some drug dealers. You know, there's got to be there's got to be a throwaway wireless somewhere in there. But yeah, Oh, of course. Yeah. 
So, <clears throat> okay, what else? We've kind of talked about the kills. We talked about protagonist girl. You want to talk about the reveal, the the final ending, and how that worked and stuff? Yeah, sounds great. Okay, well, let's talk about the reveal here. The fact that it is two killers. How did that work for you? I everything held up for me right until the reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where the movie kind of stumbled. Um, I I don't get why. I, I I mean, Corey does give you his exposition, but I don't know why. You it's, know, it's a very screen two Mickey reason, is it not? For you know, the trial is going to rock. You know, and it's and appropriately, the deputy has the same reaction. Uh, Mrs. Loomis has. She blows him away. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I mean. I did like uh, McConaughey Jr.'s kind of mania about the whole thing. Well, I'm glad you said that because I was <laughs> going to say I got a lot of Matthew McConaughey, Texas Chainsaw Next Generation off of this guy's performance. Did you? Yeah, yeah, you yes. Yeah, it, very much. I was like, oh, I want to go watch Texas Chainsaw Next Generation now because I remember the only good thing about that movie was Matthew McConaughey. And and he, because he's just insane in it, as he is in just about any other role like that. And um, <coughs> this guy definitely channels that. But I love his whole thing. I, I'll tell you, it worked for me of the whole born in the same town, die in the same town, F that, you know, and, and the other guy's motive is they're going to remember, you know, my relative now for sure. Cause I'm going to pin it on you two, you know, you meddling kids. Yeah. Um, that, that both, um, it, it's, it's kind of like a hacky. It feels like a hacky thing to me, I guess, because, you know, of scream or whatever. Right. But I did like the the monologue that Corey gives, and I did like how the sheriff just decided, oh, you know, this is too much trouble, and just shoots him. Exactly. Yeah. I, I my my thought was um, in this that it would have felt more ham fisted and cheesy in a film that didn't earn its setup. For the end. I mean, it is tropey. Your boyfriend fakes his death to try to kill you. I mean, Billy Loomis did that in Scream. It's another Scream callback. You know, we've seen this a million times. But I like it because it's also something that's real. That actually happens to people. People will do stuff to throw the sin off, and then they'll turn around and they're still alive. You know, I mean, I, I thought it was sadistic. And again, in a film that hadn't earned that setup, I would ding it more. But I will give it a pass and liked it. And I really liked the way she turned the tables on them. You, you get, you know, why one would turn on the other one. I actually thought the young guy would, would kill the the deputy because, like, you're not going to kill my would-be girlfriend. I'm going to kill her, and then that would be the turn, but he shoots him beforehand. But I love how she finds the gun in the mud and just wheels around and smacks him. I mean, shoots him right in the face with it. Yeah, I did enjoy the uh, kind of out-of-nowhereness of uh, her killing him. Yeah, I had to watch it twice, honestly. I had to go, wait a minute, where'd she get the gun? Oh, that one insert shot. So, yeah. yeah. Again, it's a really subtle thing that, like you said, you had to watch it twice. And I very nearly missed it. I, I was lucky enough to be looking at the screen when they saw uh, Chekhov's gun there. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it is. But no, I, I thought that was cool. And I liked the voiceover at the end. From her, you know, they never found, uh, you know, the deputy's body, and maybe that's the best barrel he could have had. You know, for me, I moved on, but I always wonder. And that last shot is what sinks it for me. 
she's walking down that corridor at you know generic California U, and out of the shadows comes that hooded figure again, and it's like, oh, see it, you know, when will it happen again? I like the idea, uh, the borrowing there that you know evil never dies; it just goes away for a little bit. And I, I don't know, I, I like the the cynicism of it, I guess I'd say, because I thought it was done really well. Yeah, I did enjoy that last um, surprise uh, that they put in the film for us. And I really did enjoy, you know, a lot of the things about uh, the ending in spite of um, the, the familiarity of it, I guess. I think at some point, any horror film, I mean, how, how many different ways can you end one? I mean, it, at, at some point, it just becomes... Uh, I, I exercise in futility, trying to figure out new ways to end the horror film. I, I went with it because, again, everything leading up to it worked. But in a lesser film, I would be right where you're sitting and going, I just don't. Eh, this is just, they just ended the film because they ran out of budget and who wah, you know. But this one, it felt like they earned it more. I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean that that's a perfectly valid reason, and it's not going to stop me from rewatching the film in the future. So right. Well, we've already talked about it a little bit. I think we both recommend the film for sure. But what would you give it on our popcorn rating scale? Uh, I'd definitely give it a large popcorn, possibly a large popcorn with extra butter, uh, or a large popcorn with lots of corn syrup blood. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really. I, I really did enjoy the the clever way it used uh, CGI and the, the the really impressive practical effects. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed the the kind of creativity of the kills. Um, not that they were, you know, uh, like there was no uh, sleeping bag against a tree or anything. But I liked <laughs> that. I liked the way that they were set up and I liked the way that they were executed, particularly uh, Gary Cole getting one in the eye. Uh, yeah. That was that was the jump and laugh uh, big moment of the film for me. Um, I, I, I like Addison Timlin's performance. They got a lot of really good actors for not a lot of money, even like uh, the creepy friend from the library uh, that we didn't really mention, Nick. Oh yeah, the uh, recovery love triangle kid. Uh, even he was good, and uh, I really liked the abrupt remove killer. Uh, mm -hmm. That was a lot of fun, and so yeah, I'm gonna go with large popcorn. It's it's definitely one of the better horror movies uh, from 2014, and how it didn't get like a wide release, uh, I'm not sure. I, I think distribution is always a, a funny thing when it comes to films like this. But for me, I'm joining you in the large popcorn. I think this is a well-executed film. It's fun, and it's something that pays off on rewatch. I'd seen it once before, watched it again on this one, and then, like I said, wound up rewinding to see different scenes because I wanted to make sure I got it. I think there's there's value in in the rewatch this time, and you can't always say that. You know, sometimes when once the cat's out of the bag, that's kind of it on the you know the film or the show, but. Much like, uh, you know, Nip Tuck and even that first season of American Horror Story, I don't like the ending, but that's a rewatchable show because there's just so much in there, you know. Well, and, and he crammed, uh, uh, the director uh, crammed so much cool stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, from a visual standpoint, I know there are things I missed. You know? oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. De <coughs> Definitely one of those things. <coughs> Excuse me. 
definitely one of those things that the rewatch uh, will help on. And I, I, again, I liked it. I think I had a lot of fun with it. And, and for 2014, it's definitely one of the best horror movies of that year, no doubt. And it deserves to be seen. And I'll go as far too to say, if you've never seen the old one and you can get a copy of it and watch it, do so. That's a large popcorn as well. That's a really well done, different kind of film. I mean, you got to like the 70s aesthetic, but I, I can see myself finding a copy of that and doing a back-to-back on these, you know, just a good three hour of town dreaded sundown moment because it's, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, it, it it definitely is. And I think that it's going to, that watching them back-to-back would definitely increase appreci- appreciation for what the the remake redo uh, we need a good word for what this is because I don't. It's well, you know what it is. It's it's part homage and it's part standalone. It's the, you know, it's the film. You know, what what is the town that went through this bloodbath that had a movie made about a bloodbath looked like forty years later, you know? And this is what happens. It's it's a comment on all of that social stuff too. So, and I enjoyed that that the movie is was such a big thing in the town. That was that was a fun little touch because yeah. Uh, like I say, it'd be like if there was a real Amity, like if, you know, in the Hamptons or whatever, they showed Jaws in the middle of a pool or something, which I, I think they do in some place. You know, I've seen that this summer, uh, which, you know, full power to you. But uh, no, I, I like it. I mean, I, I think it's it's it would be it's Woodsboro again showing stab moves. You know, it's it's all having a stabathon and all that kind of stuff in, in Scream 4. So <laughs> it's all that good self-referential stuff, but with a lot of good classic touch and taste that I think makes this rise above some of its contemporaries. So I, you know, I'm down for this film. I think it was really good and glad we got a chance to talk about it here. So folks, as always, you can find more of our reviews on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click the movies link there and you'll find all the old film strip shows. You can also find links to our other podcasts. You can catch up with Ron and his writing, all the stuff he's covering over at Den of Geek. Ron, I know you've been covering what Teen Wolf and what other shows are you, you reviewing right now? Fallen Skies. Yeah, Teen Wolf, Falling Skies. I did the first episode of the MTV Scream, which I really enjoyed. And I'll be getting into Fear the Walking Dead here in about a month. Oh, very cool. So lots of ways to catch up with him. And, of course, always, folks, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Catch up with us on Facebook, Twitter. We appreciate your support. Till next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. <laughs>